So this week, I wanted to focus on a topic that, well, for lack of a better term, I think is pretty topical. And that is really asking the question, what is rhetorical analysis? Now, to sort of uh, ease your concerns about maybe the idea that this topic sounds a little bit boring, I can assure you that it's actually not as boring as it may sound at first glance. And in fact, it's actually quite relevant and it's quite useful in all sorts of persuasive circumstances. So what I wanted to do today is go over what exactly that term means to rhetorically analyze a piece of writing. And again, how it sort of applies to various modes of argument, uh, persuasion, starting with assessment, of course, of different arguments and points of view and that sort of stuff. So this transcends just the academic realm. And again, I use this type of analysis in really all of my writing classes, whether they are technical, academic, or creative. So to open with, I'm going to link an assignment that I actually did today, earlier today in class. So I'll link that in the episode description, but I'll read it out loud to you just briefly here. And what this is, is a document, and it's a very specific type of document. And what I ask my students to do is to read through this document and then just take a few minutes to really think about, first of all, what this document is, then what is it trying to accomplish, and then finally, whether or not it seems like it's working to accomplish that goal and why or why not, right? So, like I said, I'll link that in the description, but let me just read you for those of you just listening. And some of this I have to sort of... uh, be creative with because it's a very distinct format that I'll explain in a moment. So from Chase Online, subject new message read. Dear Chase Online customer, we're letting you know that your Chase banking account needs more verification in our new security system database. Understand that without promptly match your information correct, as we have on Chase data file, our review team will definitely suspend or close your account. Kindly click on the verification link below. To verify your account, click here. Note, you are strictly advised to match your information correctly to avoid having future problem with Chase. If this not completed by October 24th 25th, we will suspend your account indefinitely. JP Morgan Chase Bank. Now, obviously, if you're hearing that, I add a little bit of tone to that message or that email which is what it is, based upon some of the, I guess, uh, what's the right word, typographic (laughs) decisions here, stylistic decisions, right? Where there are certain bold letters or uh, capitalized words to stand out as forms of emphasis. And that's to try to relate the tone that we're getting here. And I think just hearing it, you can probably sort of assess that there's something sketchy going on here. And in fact, what's going on here is that this is a pretty typical standard scam email. And I think actually reading it out loud is a really interesting exercise in of itself because you can sort of get a sense of how some of these elements in terms of the style, the word choice, the formatting, and the lack of real consistent attention to detail along those lines is eliciting or rather manifesting into a specific type of tone that we don't necessarily want if we are writing an email in any sort of professional or persuasive circumstance. Luckily here, that not so appropriate tone is a red flag, right? That this is clearly not what it claims to be, right? That this is obviously a scam email of some sort. 
But this is why I think it's a really interesting and engaging way to start out thinking about rhetorical analysis. So I should define, I suppose, that rhetorical analysis quite simply is analyzing the rhetoric of a piece of writing. And in this case, as an example, we've already started to do that, right? Assessing that, well, there's a tone here that is somewhat obviously problematic and we can say inappropriate towards um, our relation of what we expect from a professional organization of this type, right? Obviously, a bank, a good way that I say to start to think about it is that a, a professional institution like a bank, you sort of want to associate positive adjectives with, right? If you think about what a typical bank email would look like, you would maybe say, and I asked you, okay, what adjectives would you describe a typical bank email? You might say encouraging, appropriate, courteous, concerned, maybe if there was an issue, right? So these are all adjectives where maybe not all of them are 100% great, like we don't want to be concerned as a reader, but if there is an important issue, that's okay to elicit that sort of tone based upon word choice and formatting and details. Here, however, the adjectives that my students just earlier today were able to identify were obviously antonyms of all of those, right? This email, as an example, is more so inappropriate. And again, you have to ask for what reasons why and more specifically, what other adjectives go into that. And they, as they pointed out, they said sort of exactly the opposite. It's sort of discourteous. It's very curt in the sentence length, but also the words and details chosen, right? It is somewhat seemingly rushed or hurried. It's almost eliciting a sense of anxiety or distress. These, again, are all adjectives that we don't normally associate with dealing with our banks, right? <laughs> maybe in another era, that might be the case. And obviously, it may be the case in certain circumstances today, but we don't want that, right, as a uh, customer. And so that's against our expectation of this genre by this type of organization. And so as you can maybe sort of start to see, this is exactly why I think this is a good place to start for really thinking about how to rhetorically analyze something. And again, just to clarify, that's just analyzing the rhetoric, how that piece is written in terms of why it's written, what is it trying to accomplish, who is it trying to accomplish that point towards, and whether or not that goal is accomplished. So it's really those four or five questions that you can boil down rhetorical analysis into. And in this case, we have pretty clear answers along those lines as to whether or not we have a, a, a strong positive impression of this piece accomplishing its perceived goal, which is to scam you. And obviously, hopefully, it doesn't accomplish that goal. Now, this is also where it gets complicated, right? Because it's going to accomplish its goal to any amount of people, right? If this scam email is sent out to 10,000 or 100,000 people, well, all it takes is one person to misread it or not fully understand it for whatever reason. They click on it, they give the wrong information, and that's worth a scammer's time, obviously, right? So I think it's, again, an interesting insight into how, okay, this is a bit of an exaggeration, it's a bit of an extreme example, but I think it's, a, again, a good one in terms of any one of those red flags could hinder an argument in an otherwise actual professional setting, right? And that's exactly, we can... If you go to the actual link document in the original episode description, you'll see all sorts of instances. For example, there are grammatical and punctuation errors that 
confuse me as a reader because I don't quite understand what's being said, but there's just as many, if not more, grammatical and punctuation errors that are sloppy or lazy. And again, that contrasts or contradicts what we expect from an organization or an institution of that sort, right? You would think, well, they should probably have fact checkers or at least take the time to edit because they don't want their information to be confusing. A bank should at the very least pride itself on being clear and professional, but they certainly don't want people not understanding what's going on in the sense of if there is an issue or they're trying to provide a service or a product or something like that, right? And again, this contrasts or contradicts what our expectation is. So these are all sort of red flags along those lines. And again, it's just sloppy. And there's so many other argumentative, persuasive situations in your own writing and your own life, where if you make similar sloppy mistakes, your reader might still understand what you're trying to express, what idea or emotion or argument you're trying to get across to them, but they might not be as engaged and they might not care. You know, the perfect example that I use is in cover letter writing, which is a type of document that pretty much everybody I know has written at some point or will write at some point. You might also think of that as an application letter or something along those lines. But anyways, it's the idea of writing a letter as part of an application, whether to a job or an internship or a proposal of some sort, where you're trying to convince your reader, your audience, that what you have to say is representative of what you have to provide. And again, there's so many extensions of that. I write cover letters for submitting articles and short stories, as well as applying to jobs and, and promotions and other types of positions. There's so many extensions of how that type of writing really comes into practice in the professional world, which is why it's so important to look at and really think about and really continue to refine. Unfortunately, that's one of the trickier or tougher parts about writing is that you're constantly improving. But that's a good thing because the more you practice, the more you try different techniques and elements, just the the stronger sort of skill set you have to work with within that type of, of writing, like I say. So I think it's really interesting to think about how these very sort of fine-tuning elements of, yeah, making sure that everything's clear and consistent as well might be the difference between somebody who accepts what you have to say and want to learn more about what you have to say and somebody who sort of doesn't. And I've talked about this in previous podcast lectures. If you go back, maybe I'll link some of them in the episode description as well, where I specifically focus on talking about cover letters and that sort of thing, because it's an absolutely relevant, vital, real world type of writing. So, but anyways, I think again, as I said earlier, that in terms of rhetorical analysis and why we do that, there's a practical, tangible, real-world extension where practicing the skill set of rhetorical analysis will in turn help you with your own rhetoric when you're trying to write a letter like that, which is going to be huge if you're trying to advance in your career or be enrolled at a new institution or whatever the case, like I said, may be. So I think that's often also one of the disconnects where I can't tell you how many students who get to either my freshman writing class or even some of my technical professional writing classes, they come in thinking that rhetorical analysis and more often just analysis in general, whether it's rhetorical or literary, which is kind of rhetorical analysis, but in the sense of analyzing a story or something like that, right? The literary sort of ideas and, and techniques within a story, they sort of think of it as just an activity. Well, it's just sort of tricks that you have to learn to identify. Oh yeah, that's a simile, that's a metaphor. That's how you express that meaning. And 
they don't necessarily have a concept or a grasp of why that's important, why that's actually meaningful, and more importantly, why that's actually useful. And as I've just mentioned for those reasons, yeah, it's very real world practical and, and meaningful. So that's actually been over the years now. I've been teaching five or six years now at the college level. It's been really, I guess, sort of rewarding and certainly enlightening to try to make that connection for students in my classes where I can really point to how there's actual real world benefits here to practicing this type of analysis, right? All too often students think, well, I just have to get through this academic paper and then I'm done. Oh, great. I never have to write an English paper again. Whereas what they should be thinking is this is great practice for other types of research and analysis and argumentation and perspective that I will have to sort of reproduce in various professional, personal writing situations moving forward. And I say personal because that's true too. If you're trying to make even an argument or express your point of view via text or email, yeah, you're employing rhetoric of various sorts. It's it's in every form of communication that you can think of essentially, and even verbal communication. So sort of making these elements part of your your being in terms of how you approach expression, I think is immensely vital. And again, I, you know, I say students have had bad experiences in the past with this, but I don't want to just paint that as a broad stroking brush because I, I, there's so many other fantastic teachers out there who do a really great job teaching this value. Uh, and, and that's great to see as well. But I think it's certainly a point that needs to continue to be emphasized moving forward because that's what students are interested in. They want to know, why are we doing this? What is actually the merit? What is actually the value? And what's the, the benefit ultimately? So from there in my classes, in terms of rhetorical analysis itself, we do other exercises like that. We, we look at some other scam emails. Another one I like to do is how to write a parking ticket uh, appeal request, which I've done many times. And I always joke, but it's true. I've never paid a parking ticket because I've always been granted appeals. So I tell them how, hey, look, here's 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 dollars that you can not pay by. Obviously, if you don't know these techniques and tools, you might agonize for hours over trying to write a good appeal. And it just doesn't get granted because, again, it's not taking into account these considerations. Whereas, if you are able to sort of make them part of your your skill set of how you approach writing, I mean, I never spend more than maybe half an hour on writing a parking ticket appeal, but if it saves me any amount of money, that can be well worth <laughs> the investment, right? Um, not that I get parking tickets all the time or anything. It's, it sounds it might sound like I have a million parking tickets, but just the five or six times that's happened. Um, you know, in various settings, uh, I've, I've always uh, submitted those types of appeals. And it's employing all the elements of rhetoric that we mentioned earlier. Who, What is my goal, right? Who is my audience? Why should my audience care about what I have to say? And really asking, okay, well, how do I approach that subject matter in a way that doesn't seem contrived, doesn't seem disingenuous, doesn't seem patronizing, right? You want to lean towards describing what you perceive your writing to be in those more positive adjectives, right? And that's what you can always sort of come back to, uh, sort of at the, the uh, I hesitate to say more rudimentary level, maybe the better phrase is the more sort of uh, holistic level of how you holistically assess the work that you're you're cre crafting and you wind up creating, right? Anyways, we do those types of assignments because they are real world, they are practical. And then we start to transition into 
we do some other fun ones as well that I've done episodes on. I'll link those in the description too. Might be a lot of links in this one, but it's good stuff, I'm telling you. Um, anyways, we move on to analyzing newspaper articles in, from the school newspaper uh, op-ed pieces. So those are opinion articles written by other students. And I think that is a very, very effective form of rhetorical analysis for a number of reasons. And I'll just boil down a few of them here. And I think actually for anybody listening who is an instructor or just a student of some other course or just a student of life, somebody who's interested in this sort of stuff, it's worth analyzing writing that is done by what I call average people, normal people, everyday people. And that's what you get in those school op-ed pieces sometimes. That's not to say that they're not good writers or to demean their writing in any ways. What I mean by that is that they're not maybe article writers by trade, right? They're just trying to express an opinion, a point of view, an argument that they want to get across to their fellow student body. And so, this is interesting to look at for a number of reasons, like I say, I think the most of which is that the students in my class who are analyzing those students' articles are themselves sort of in a very similar situation as those students, right? So they can sort of perceive, hmm, well, I am a student as well. How would I write a similar argument, right? And why would I do that or not do that? Furthermore, they also then have to ask, well, who is that student writing to? You can't just analyze, and this is something actually that students often start out doing in their drafts. They say, well, the author's argument was effective or it was not effective, for, to the audience, right? To the reader for these reasons. And the first thing I say is, who is the audience? Who is the reader? And the answer is largely fellow students at your university, right? It's a school paper. They're trying to most likely convince the other students reading it. Well, that leads to now an even deeper question. What types of students among that student body are going to react in what ways to what techniques are included in this article? And that's where it gets very complex very quickly, because based on the subject matter, there's going to be very different answers, right? And that's why I love this assignment, because you can really sort of dive in deep into why some techniques might work in some circumstances, but not so much in others. And this is something that I think translates very well into the next paper that students do, where they try to write their own researched arguments, and they have to ask, well, wait a minute, how do I make sure that this is clear to my reader? Well, who is my reader starting out, right? Is it my professor? Is it somebody else reading it, somebody else editing it? These are very practical real-world questions. And so I think it's a great exercise, like I say, in terms of getting students to think beyond just, well, this argument is effective because the audience will think this or the audience won't think that. Again, you have to ask who the audience is. Is it largely uh, academic readers? Is it uh, you know, some type of reader within a certain field, right? There's all sorts of different real life circumstances where that question is going to be an important one and it's going to have an important answer. And here it's absolutely the case. And so if you have a topic that is, for example, I had one last semester where students were analyzing an article and it was arguing about smoking on campus. And I said, okay, well, who's the audience? Students. Okay. Well, what types of students will have opinions or perspectives or experiences that will be able to be engaged in certain instances, right? And so you can divide into sub-audiences almost. Well, there's probably students who are smokers themselves. 
well, they're going to be a hard sell, right? If the argument of the article, for example, is that smoking should be banned on campus entirely. Well, is the author doing a good job trying to appeal to those readers? Is the author not? Is the author in some ways doing a good job and in other ways could improve in some way? Similarly, what about students who just don't care about the issue? What about students who are uninformed about the issue? What about students who feel very strongly the other way? What about students who already agree with you? Do you need to even convince them of anything? Do you need to convince them to try to convince other students? So you can kind of go down this rabbit hole of questioning, and then the real challenge is kind of asking, well, which of these answers is really meaningful as part of the analysis, right? But again, these are really great questions to be asking, and I think they're the types of questions of assessment that you can take into all other sorts of real-world argumentative circumstances. And we see this in, in various instances. I mean, politics is the obvious example, but I think it's a really good one, right? Because, I mean, politics is all rhetoric, essentially. And what we perceive as effective or ineffective is largely based on who we are within that audience, right? One politician can have a rally and say all sorts of things, and everybody at the rally thinks that they are the greatest thing ever, right? Whereas the same speech or uh, or rally speech being listened to by somebody on uh, watching it on TV who has the opposite viewpoint or just disagrees might think it's the worst speech in history, right? And the question is like, okay, well, what is that disconnect? Well, clearly, there's a lot more here than just the facts themselves, if there are any facts at all, as we know is sometimes a problem with politics. And again, the question becomes, okay, well, if it's that effective to those group, that group of pe- of people, and that ineffective to that other group of people, what is going on in terms of the word choice, right? In terms of how that word choice creates a certain tone, in terms of the details included themselves, right? In terms of the pacing, in t- terms of the references, right? Are these references more relatable to that target audience versus the others who disagree, who won't get that reference or won't won't agree with it, won't relate to it? So there's so many further considerations along those lines that you can dive into. And again, I think doing this type of analysis with a set of student articles is super useful for that reason, because I I do feel as if when you just choose a really good article to analyze, that is good and that is useful, but that's sort of what I feel like most people do. And so I'll read a lot of times papers, rhetorical analysis papers from other classes where they're sort of analyzing articles that are fantastically well-written and their analysis is how fantastic those articles are. And I sort of say, yeah, great. I agree. What am I being convinced of exactly here then? Right. And again, that's not to demean that, that exercise or say it's not valuable. It definitely is. You want to know what to emulate in writing your, your, for yourself. But I do think there's a lot of merit and perhaps undervalued merit in some circumstances to really having to ask, well, wait a minute, this article that I'm analyzing isn't good or bad. Those are not, for lack of a better term, good or bad words to use to describe it. Rather, this article is pretty effective in some ways. However, it could be much more effective if it did these other things, right? And that ties back into this idea, like we were saying earlier of, well, who are the audiences that are being appealed to here and why or why not are those appeals effective, right? And so that type of very more broad spectrum perspective, I think, goes a long way in terms of students moving forward. And like I said, really approaching different argumentative and persuasive situations in their own much more sort of targeted or just 
more deeply thought way, I guess, is is kind of the the plainer way to put it. But I mean, I I definitely have many students who tell me years later how important this type of activity is to them. And ironically, I think <laughs> in general, students sometimes still struggle with rhetorical analysis, which is why it takes time. I don't think this is the type of assignment that can really be rushed because then you risk students not getting this full understanding that we've been discussing about this episode. And if they don't, I think that's a real sort of disservice because they sort of then just go through the motions like they have maybe with other analytical writing or uh, whatever type of writing in general to try to just get the job done without understanding, again, these much more important core components of, well, what does it actually mean and why is it actually valuable, right? So, like I said, these are techniques that you can take with you in all sorts of other circumstances moving forward. And I'll probably talk more about this in com- upcoming episodes because I do have some different activities that I kind of want to explain as well. There's actually, I've gotten a lot of interesting, good feedback about those types of podcast episodes that people have liked. Um, but I will say, you know, just to cap off this episode and this topic, this subject matter, that I do see tangible benefits. And in fact, I, my students, when they write their next paper, their research argument paper, I think they approach it sort of knowing that now there is this expectation of really looking at, okay, well, is this actually, are these perspectives representative of legitimate arguments? So this is something that we'll probably get into more depth in a further future episode. But I also have students who go on to write for the school paper, which is really cool. I mean, there's been points where I feel like half the staff are (laughs) former students of mine. I've had students who become regular columnists, who become um, editors. I've even had a student who was uh, editor-in-chief. So it's really cool to see those students go on to write themselves. And that's why I say it's by no means... When I I have my students analyze these articles and and ask, well, what's effective and not so effective about them, it's by no means demeaning. It's to point out, well, yeah, let's really dive into what's done well and what could be done better. And if you're writing at all, that's what you want to know as a writer. You want to know, okay, what do I do well? So I know what to do, continue to do. And what do I, what could I improve upon, right? So next time I can create a more effective argument or, or mode of expression, whatever that may be. So it's been really cool to see students over the years now become writers themselves, even if they're not actually pers- writers per se, right? They're studying biology or health sciences or sustainability studies, and they just realize, hey, I actually now have the tools to express a really uh, interesting point of view or important point of view, uh, an important point of controversy or or piece of information that the campus community should know about, whatever the case may be. And it's funny because this is probably a little biased, right? A little subjective, but I do feel as if when my students, my current students analyze those student articles, oftentimes now they analyze articles by former students of mine. And that's always really kind of funny because it's interesting to be, for me when I grade, to be analyzing a student of mine who's analyzing a student of mine, right? Or a former student of mine. But I will say, and this is why I say maybe I'm being a little biased or subjective, that I find in general the students who analyze my former students' articles, they usually have really good things to say about those articles. So, 
whether or not that's <laughs> that's you know uh always the case i won't say but i i find it's often the case they usually come out saying yeah this article does a really good job for all these reasons and trying to appear, appeal to these types of audiences so we can just chalk that up to me being a fantastic instructor let's go with that right but anyways that's all i really wanted to talk about today just sort of introduce and clarify a little bit what is rhetorical analysis and why is it important and again, I really do think anybody listening, whether you are a student, professor, uh, student of life, just a, a fan of writing and, and learning, you can get a lot out of this type of thinking. So like I said, I'll link some former episodes uh, in the description here, but I think just sort of starting to intuit these ideals that we've discussed here can go a long way moving forward in your own modes of expression throughout life. So yeah, that's all for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you like this sort of stuff, please do subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast because it's been uh, great to bring more episodes. Uh, we started up again as after a bit of a hiatus last year, and we've had a few episodes so far this year, and we're going to keep them coming. We've been doing more interviews, which has been awesome, so we'll have some more talks and conversations with other instructors, former students, writers, teachers, all that good stuff, as well as these sort of more uh, informational or educational episodes as well. So yeah, like I said, if you like this sort of stuff, please do subscribe because it's been uh, great to bring this content to, to others and hear what they have to say. I've gotten a lot of really great feedback uh, on this podcast over the last year now, over a year now we've been doing it. So that's been awesome. But anyways, until next time, thanks again for listening. And as always, keep learning.